So let me get back to what I'm here for. You guys know who Jim Gaffigan, the comedian, is? Um, Funny guy. Uh, And he's got, I can't do this justice, okay? Because he's got that kind of goofy, nasally voice. But I I was thinking about bedtime this week because my my daughter and my son-in-law have this new baby and they just never sleep, right? And so I started thinking about when my wife and I were raising our four kids and, you know, how difficult bedtime would be. And so he's got this hilarious take on bedtime. Here's what he said. He goes, bedtime makes you realize how completely incapable you are of being in charge of another human being. My children act like they've never been to sleep before. Bed? What's that? No, I'm not doing that. They never want to go to bed. This is another thing I'll never have in common with my children. Every morning when I wake up, my first thought is, when can I come back here? It's the carrot that keeps me motivated. Sometimes going to bed feels like the highlight of my day. Ironically to my children, bedtime's a punishment that violates their basic rights as human beings. Once the lights are out, you can expect at least an hour of inmates clanging their tin cups on the cell bars. It's just so true if you've ever had kids. Joan and I would do almost anything. We created all kinds of uh, silly, silly things. You remember that song by MC Hammer, um, Stop It's Hammer Time was one of the lines? I'd put that on and I changed the lyrics to stop it's jamma time. And so, uh, you know, we'd stop the song and they'd have to go up. This is what it was like to be raised by me. Um, So I think half of them still think that's the line to the song. And one of the routines, because we were parents just like you, one of the routines was to teach, to read them a, a bedtime story. Now, as the kids got older, I don't know if you remember this, they didn't want to read the kids' books anymore. They wanted to read books that were a little longer. And it became impossible to finish the book in one night before I fell asleep. And so I remember as I was reading, I would start like thinking ahead in the story and figuring out where I could just break it off so I could, I could get them to go to bed, right? Now, when they were young, this was relatively easy, right? You just kind of stop. And they weren't old enough to demand any resolution in the story. It was like, okay, that's good. But as they got older and the stories got longer, whenever I'd try to kind of wrap it up, there was this one question that would come, and it always demanded an answer. And then what happened, Daddy? Well, I'll talk about that tomorrow. That, my friends, is the question which is at the heart of this super important new series that we're going to start today. And then what happens? It's a question that every child knows to ask, but if we're honest, when it comes to the story of Jesus and his resurrection, the one we just celebrated two weeks ago, let's just be honest, like nobody asks what happened after that. We kind of wrap the story up there. It's like what I used to do with my kids at bedtime. It's, it's almost as if somebody's fooled us into believing that that's the end of the story, and it's packaged, and that's it. Jesus came out of the grave, and everybody lived happily ever after. But that's not the end of the story. Honestly, it's not even close to the end of the story. I mean, Jesus' resurrection, his, his coming back to life after being dead for three days, is not the end of his story, and it's not the end of ours either. And, and that's why this is so, so, so important. There's three reasons that we're going to spend, if you'll stick with me, the next bunch of weeks learning the rest of the story. First, if your understanding of Christianity ends with the resurrection, this sounds a little brutally honest, but I think it's true, then it's likely you really don't understand Christianity. Now, that doesn't mean you're a bad Christian. Most of us 
You know, when we grew up, we were kind of told, here's what we believe. We believe in God. We believe in the Ten Commandments. We believe in Jesus and that he died and that he came back to life. And that's kind of the package that we were given as children, right? So it doesn't mean you're a bad Christian to believe that. It just means that you're actually a lot like Jesus' disciples who really didn't understand this new faith or what Jesus called a new covenant until, and this is so fascinating, you're going to see this. I mean, Peter, who was in charge of the church, remember? Peter, Jesus said, I'm going to build my church on you. You're the rock. Peter didn't understand this new religion, this new faith, this new covenant. For 15 to 20 years after Jesus' resurrection, that's a long time. Literally, that's the history on this. What Jesus came to do, the faith he came to start, you're going to see is so radical, it is so different and completely and entirely different than what they had expected. It took a long time for the disciples to really wrap their heads around it. In fact, you're going to see they fought it. Even Jesus' disciples, who saw him resurrected, weren't sure they were interested. It wasn't easy, as you're going to see in the coming weeks, to, to change what you believe or what you were raised to believe. It's not easy to change what you believe, even if you discover that it's not right. I want you to think about that in the coming weeks. So just like the disciples... Then it's the same for us now. When we don't know what we believe, or we only know a part of the story, right? It can, it can cause lots of misunderstandings, and just like with the disciples, lots of fights and arguments between believers themselves and then with those who don't believe. And, and this is a frustration for me. I, I watch too much news. And most of the time, most of the time, people do things and say things and fight for and over things under the banner of Christianity that really have very little to do with Christianity. Like literally almost nothing. What we wind up putting under the banner of Christianity, it's very far from the kingdom of God that Jesus was constantly talking about. Now I want you to understand, most of, most of those things come out of a, a heart of goodwill. But if we don't really know the story, and the story didn't end with Jesus' resurrection, if we don't know our story, we actually, I thought about this, we can actually be fighting with the wrong weapons against the wrong enemy and for the wrong kingdom, the wrong side. All born out of goodwill. We just didn't, just didn't know our story. Second, um, Renee and Jenna actually talked about this. This is a big one for me. I raised my kids in the faith, and I'm now starting a new generation of faith. When we raise our kids with only part of the story, right, when, when they get sent off to college or, or into an unbelieving world, they wind up ill-prepared, right, to stand up against the skepticism with which their faith is going to be met. Because they don't really know their story, there's no roots to it, it's just kind of like Ten Commandments, God, Jesus died, raise again. Because that's kind of it. As soon as a, a college professor in their class or, or a friend maybe that's an atheist, as soon as they challenge them on the part of the story that they, they know or, or they don't know, it's likely they're going to walk away from the part of the story that they do know. If you were here on Easter, that was what was behind the letter I wrote to my new granddaughter, Landry. I want her to know her story, to be rooted in it so she doesn't lose her faith, because it's hard. 
This is hard to maintain faith for a lifetime. I mean, if, if maintaining faith is easy for you, God bless you. But for most of us, it's like, whoa. And, and lastly, and I see this all over right now. When we only know part of the story, we wind up getting played by people. Like literally just used by, by politicians, by political parties, by marketing machines, by corporate interests, who all appeal to the part of the story we know, but just ignore the rest that we don't. Now, I mean, this is everywhere. It's not a political statement. Both sides of the aisle do this, right? But we wind up getting used. Jesus winds up, this is really pathetic, but Jesus winds up as just being a means to people's personal ends. And the church, who is supposed to be a witness to Christ, a witness to the world, we wind up contributing to this propagation of half-truths. And we turn people away from God rather than draw people to him. Now make no mistake about it. When the gospel is properly understood, it is still what that word means, good news. And it is still incredibly powerful. You're going to see that in the coming weeks. Incredibly powerful. It could still draw people. It could still draw your, your children and, 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 and your unknowing friends or your unbelieving friends. Now, as we celebrated last week, right, Jesus is risen from the dead. We need to start asking a new question every time we come to, to, to Easter morning. Remind them, and then what happened? Well, I'm going to show you how powerful the good news of Jesus is when, really, when people really get it. This is unbelievable, okay? I want you to think about this. Days after Jesus' resurrection, here's what we know about the condition of the movement, what would become known as the way, okay? Here's what we know about the, uh, the way at that moment. Some of the disciples believed. Not a lot of them. Some doubted. You might have been able to count the number of believers on one hand. But, and this is incredible, I mean, really, I want you to think about this, because I... I mean, there's just so much stuff in your story that we, that we don't think about, in our story that we don't think about, that would so make us, our roots and our faith, deeper. Think about this. Only 300 years after Jesus' death, when there was a handful of people that had seen him and believed, okay? Only 300 years after his death, there were 30 million Christians and Christianity was the official religion of the Roman Empire, the same empire which had crucified him. How is that even possible? There is, in, in those 300 years, there was no books, no Bibles, no radio, no printing press, no TV or Internet. Most of the world was illiterate. They could not read or write. In 300 years, there was 30 million Christians, and it was the official religion of the world's greatest empire. Does anybody know how that happened? I mean, shouldn't we wonder, how the heck did that happen? That's your story. That's the power of the gospel that's available. And, and I believe, and maybe I'm, you know, maybe I'm a Pollyanna in this, I believe that if we really understood that story, the power is still there. I mean, could it happen again? 
What was so compelling? You ever think about this? What would have been so compelling about the message of Jesus that it literally changed the whole known world? And if you knew the whole story, and if you understood the truth, could it still change your whole world? So then what happened? Well, in order to go forward in the story of Jesus from the resurrection, we're needing to spend a little time understanding where that story has been. Right? We tend to pick it up in the middle. So as the truth about Jesus, here's what happened. As the truth about Jesus began to spread outside of Jerusalem, right, and into these faraway provinces in the first century, the primary engine for the growth of Christianity, and you're going to see this, it's, it's all in the, in the scriptures, was not among Jesus' own people. Quite controversially, actually, it wasn't. Jesus was a Jewish rabbi. All of his friends, his associates, his colleagues, his disciples, they were all Jews. But when this movement of Jesus rapidly exploded, it exploded amongst Gentile people. And as you're going to see in the coming week, this caused a lot of debates, even downright fights among the disciples and the apostles. Those early Gentile believers, as they came to faith in Jesus, right, and, and they, had, they only had what, what the disciples were telling them. They might have, by the end of the first century, they might have been some written copies of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, some first-hand accounts going around. And so as they came to this faith, they began to realize that the Jesus they had begun to follow actually had a backstory. And it was a Jewish backstory. And so while those early churches just had those original, well, not even the original manuscripts, some copies of those manuscripts, they began to realize that Jesus could also be found and seen in the ancient scriptures of the Jewish people, writings that the Jews, they did not call them the Old Testament. It wasn't an Old Testament to them. But the law, they called them the law and the prophets. And so here's what they discovered as they began to search through these Jewish texts. That there was a man, a real human being named Moses, living, breathing human being, whose historicity is attested to by three major religions, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. All of them see Moses as a prophet. This man named Moses, he lived about 1,300 years before Jesus. And Moses, they discovered, had written five books they began to call it, because they, they were calling it in the Greek, the Pentateuch. But the Jews had referred to these first five books as the Torah. And so we're going to start with Moses, and we're going to start with the prophets for a pretty cool reason. Two Sundays ago, we, we started with Jesus and his resurrection, right? And, and, and I told you, very few people believed. If you remember, the women came back to the disciples and they didn't believe the women. They thought the women were crazy. And then they went to the tomb, and, and, and they didn't see Jesus either. There's this very cool story that happens later that morning. Luke, the Greek doctor turned first-rate historian, he recounts it from his research into this. He says, shortly after the resurrection, Jesus was on a road that two of his disciples were walking on to a city called Emmaus. And Jesus comes up and starts walking beside them. Now, first, they don't know it's him. And so... You can almost see Jesus going, why so glum, friends? 
And they begin to explain the, the story of Jesus and their disappointment. And that the women had seen him, but the men hadn't. And that's why they were, they were in the state they, they were in. And so here's what Jesus says to them. How foolish you are. I just love that. How, you fools. How foolish you are. And slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, right? So Jesus goes, ho, ho, see, the problem is you don't know the story. You, you missed the story, boys. Beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Moses and the prophets. Jesus said to them, if you want to believe, you've got to start with Moses and the prophets. And so if it was good enough for Jesus and the disciples, I figured it was good enough for us. So here's the story. And Moses, in, in the sacred Jewish writings, he begins with a book that you and I know as Genesis. In the Greek, it, it's the word origins. And it's in that book that Moses details the origins of not just the universe, but more importantly, I would argue, a, a special nation called Israel. It was this nation, a chosen people of God by God, it was this nation that would eventually usher in God's solution to the problem of sin in the world. You see, Moses described in that opening book, that book of origins, right, that the world originated in what the Jews called a, a state of the shalom, which meant that everything, when God created it, was working as it should. All of it perfectly intertwined, interlaced, harmonious. There was complete wholeness, fullness, completeness. In all things, in all relationships, between man and creation, between man and man, man and woman, woman um, man, woman and creation, it was all relationally perfect. And Moses details the breaking of the shalom in all of those relationships by the choices of man not to allow God to be God, but instead to reclaim that authority for themselves, out of pride to seize power and authority. And what Moses detailed was that this problem of sin, which literally just means missing the mark of God, that it, it became not a one-time problem, but a genetic issue, a core human issue, a, a curse that caused all humanity to be cut off from the source of life, God, and from life itself. That though we were created to live eternally, because of this broken nature that we all now inherit, we all die. We all have a terminal disease. You literally have, I don't know if the doctors have told you that, but you have a terminal disease. You're going to die. And you're going to die because of this sin issue. And you're going to be separated from God, not just in this life, but eternally. That was what Moses was laying out. But here's what he, he, he would argue over the beginning of these books. One day, this nation Israel would bring forth a cure for this terminal disease and restore all of those right relationships between everything and everyone with God restored to his rightful place in creation and in our lives. That was the story. Now Moses says, you should check this out, make sure your kids understand it, that the cure began with a very real human being named Abraham. And again, Judaism, Christianity, Islam all agree on this, right? You'll see, it's actually interesting, that often, especially through the Old Testament, God is constantly moving through people to establish his kingdom. Even the worst of people sometimes, right? 
And so Moses writes that God comes to Abraham and institutes, this is super important, guys, institutes with him a new covenant. Now, a covenant, God works through these things, is a binding agreement. It's like a legal contract. This concept of a covenant, you're going to see it throughout the history of the Jewish people, and then you're going to see, we just celebrated it this morning, that Jesus takes one of them and radically changes them. And so really, just out of nowhere, you never know when God is just going to show up in your life and do something today or tomorrow, because Abraham didn't see it coming. Out of nowhere, God comes to this man, Abraham, and God offers him an unconditional covenant. God, the God of the universe, comes to a human being and goes, I'm not going to make you a deal. I'm just telling you this is what I'm going to do for you, and I promise you, God willingly binds himself to man. That's unbelievable. Now, here's how Moses recorded this amazing, amazing, amazing moment. Right? At this time, everybody, you know, every city's got their own God, every town, gods, nobody believes in a, in a monotheistic God. Right? Abraham's, the, 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 there's stories that Abraham's father used to be creator of idols for all of these towns and their gods. This is what the, the, the landscape into which God enters the story. And so God comes to Abraham and he goes, Abraham, go from your country and your people and your father's household to the land I'll show you. I'm going to make you into a great nation. So step back. Leave, here's, the prom, here's the promise that God's making him. Unconditional. There's nothing you can do, Abraham, to deserve this. I'm just doing it. I promise you. I want you to leave your family and your nation. At that time, it was a place called Ur of the Chaldeans. This is a real place. Most scholars believe that it was likely located in modern-day Iraq. I want you to leave this nation and these people and your family because I'm going to give you a new family. I'm going to make you into a new nation, and it's going to be a great nation. And then God goes on even further. I mean, it's ridiculous. God just is showering this on this one man out of nowhere. He says, and I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to make your name great. And you'll be a blessing. I'm going to bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I'll curse. And so God says to Abraham, this is just ridiculous. It's what just God chose to do, right? Abraham didn't do anything to deserve this. He's blessed by God, but not only for his own good, for the good of others. I'm going to bless you, and you'll be a blessing. And then God gives him this promise to protect him and his family. But then he goes even further. And he goes, and one more thing, Abraham, all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, that's a big promise, huge promise. This isn't just for you and your family. I'm telling you, what I have for you is going to bless all people on earth. This is a guy sitting somewhere in southern Iraq, right, thousands of years ago on a, a pile of rocks. Abram, this covenant I'm making with you right now, Here's what it was. I'm going to give you land, which he did. I'm going to give you a new family, which he did, miraculously. I'm going to make you into a new nation, which he did. And I'm going to make your name great. Can I ask you to participate with me in this for one moment? If before you walked in here this morning, you knew the name of Abraham, of Ur of Chaldeans from 3,000 years ago, can you raise your hand if you've heard that name, Abraham, before? Amen. Now, I want you to keep your hand up if you can name one other person that lived 3,000 years ago that you know, you know, that, 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 that you're aware of. So did God make, keep his promise? 
Abraham, I will make your name great. Yeah, he did, right? But then, this is really wild, right? If you want to see how unbelievably so, even to this day, God keeps these promises. Imagine this. Shortly after Jesus' death and resurrection, 40 years, the Roman Empire comes into Jerusalem and destroys the whole city. They destroy the temple. You can still see the, the, the outside wall. If you go to Jerusalem today, you can see the outside wall of the original temple. It's called the Wailing Wall. People put their prayer requests into the bricks there. That still stands. The rest of the temple's gone. And the Romans, the Romans destroyed the city. And a, a diaspora of the Jews that lasted for 2,000 years began. Until World War II, when in 1948, the nation of Israel was rebirthed. Now, I want you to think about this, okay? Just enter the story. There was a people, not a very big group of people, mind you. There was a people without a country or a homeland for 2,000 years that were all over the world. But somehow they didn't just get assimilated into any other nation or culture. They existed outside of the land promised to them by God for 2,000 years. But they believed in a God that kept his promises. That, uh, that this God had made this covenant with their forefather Abraham and that he was going to be true to the promise. And 2,000 years later, Israel appears back on the map. When, when you watch the news today and you, and you see the turmoil in the Middle East and the fighting over this land, this all goes back to the Abrahamic covenant. Abraham's name is still great and the Jews are still a great nation and they're still a great nation on the same land that God promised them 3,000 years ago. I mean, if you understand this, the confidence it would give you in your God, he's going to come through for you. He's going to do what he said he's going to do. He's going to keep his promises. I mean, imagine if our kids understood this, right? It's just now Ten Commandments, Jesus died for us, and we can go to heaven. That, you're going to walk away. They're going to walk away from that. Now, here, here's the deal. The, the book of Genesis, right, it, it details the patriarchs of, of this new people. You've got Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and lots of stories about their families. And, and then Moses in the next book, a book called Exodus, it goes into his life story. And, and the nation of Israel, it finds itself, this people of God, in bondage to Egypt. And, and the story tells how God chose Moses to lead the people. Moses was kind of like a, a precursor to Jesus. He was a savior of his people to lead them out of bondage in Israel and into the land that had been promised to Abraham. And so Moses goes out. He leads his people out with a lot of the wealth of Egypt, right? The famous story where they cross the Red Sea, the, the water dries up, and they go across it. And, and, and as they do, God leads Moses to the base of a mountain called Mount Sinai. And again, God chooses to enter into another covenant, another binding, legally binding agreement with Abraham and his people. Now, this covenant goes by a different name. It goes by the, the covenant, it's called the Mosaic Covenant. Some people call it the Mount Sinai Covenant. And unlike, this is different than the Abrahamic Covenant, this one was conditional, super important. Here's what Moses says God told him. He said, Moses, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if, sounds like a father, right? Now if, it's a conditional covenant. It's literally an if-then. Now if you obey me fully and you keep my covenant... Then, uh, here's, there's the then, then out of all of the nations, 
you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, it's super important to understand this, okay? This Mosaic covenant is not eternal. It was fulfilled. Jesus fulfilled it, right? But this was the covenant that the Jews were living under when Jesus was alive. And at the heart of this covenant were laws, lots of them. Not just Ten Commandments, over 600 commandments that God had given his people to live by when they entered this promised land. These commandments were far-reaching. They had moral and ethical and judicial and legal restrictions, even dietary restrictions. And, and God gave them to Israel because this was part of the plan. He wanted to make Israel completely distinct from every other nation on earth. He wanted them to look unusual. So God tells Moses, if you and the people will obey all of these laws and not allow yourself to be influenced by the nations around you, not take on their gods, right, but remain distinct, then I'm going to bless you. And why? So you can be a blessing. You're so distinct, you're going to stand out so much because of these laws. All the nations on earth are going to come to believe that, you know what? We have a lot of gods. They only have one. And look at how God is blessing that nation. Their God, that he had introduced himself as Yahweh, their God must be the God. But if you don't, if you don't keep these commandments, then for that very same reason, I'm because he's a father, I will discipline you not purely for punishment, so that you will turn back and repent and be restored. Now, some scholars have actually likened these, these um, commandments to a, a, a ketubah in a Jewish wedding, the, the promises that a groom is making to his bride in a very real sense. And so Moses goes down from the mountain, and he explains to the people this conditional promise of God. Now, remember, the Abrahamic covenant was unconditional. They would always be his people, right? But this one was about the blessings of God, which were conditional. And so Moses explains, hey, guys, here's the new deal. This is the covenant God would like us to enter. And so apparently they have a choice. Here's what Moses recorded. The people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. She said yes. And so Moses brought their answer back to God. And this launches a new nation, the one that was first promised to Abraham, and it launches it in a new land. Now, the rest of the law and the prophets, what we call the Old Testament, is about, I mean, just to sum it up, it's about this nation and their struggle to, to live up to this covenant. And, and really, there's just three characters that play themselves out over and over and over, three three. Um, offices, you would say. The first one is the role of priest. God in that covenant, that Mosaic covenant, he says, you know, to atone for your sins, I want you to, to, to enter into, and he imparts to them a new sacrificial system where sacrifices are made and offered regularly for the people to atone for their sins. And there's lots and lots of laws about the sacrifices and what kind of sacrifices and when you sacrifice, but they're all to be led by the priests. God establishes this priesthood in Israel. The role of the high priest is established. His role is going to be the mediator between man and God. Man cannot go before God. The priest needs to go on his behalf, and he oversees this entire sacrificial system. 
Now, that role of high priest gets inherited. It gets passed down one generation to the next. It started with Moses' brother Aaron, and it was handed down all the way to Caiaphas in Jesus' day. Then there was the story of kings. So you had priests, then you had kings. God didn't want Israel to have kings. But Israel took their eyes off God and looked around at the other nations where God had told them not to do that. And they said, look, God, we can't see you. And we look at these other countries, and they have these kings, and they're big, bold, strong men. And, we, and they rally around their kings, and their, their kings protect them, and their kings provide. And God looks at Israel and is going, but that's what I want to do for you. And Israel goes, but we want, a, we want a king with flesh on. And so God permits them to have kings. He wanted to be their king. He wanted to rule through judges, but God acquiesces. And, and for the most part, it turns out to be a disaster. Time after time again, Israel is led by horrible kings. There were some good ones. David, right? David and, David and Goliath, right? He was their second king. He was a good one. But most of them weren't. Most of them as humans tended to be seeking after their own glorification, after their own self-interests. And they would, need, they would lead the nation constantly astray. So the third and final role you see a lot in the Old Testament is the role of prophet. A lot of the Old Testament law, law and prophet, right? First five books are the law, then comes a lot of prophets. These prophets, God would send prophets to warn and correct the kings for what they were doing with Israel. Lots of the Old Testament are the rants and writings of these prophets. And they're almost always addressing specific issues with what the kings are doing with his people. Most of the writings have something to do with what's happening in that day in Israel. Again, this is why you don't go into to the Old Testament and grab a verse, right, meant for Israel at a specific time related to a specific issue and go, see, it says right here. People will do that to you. Don't let them do that to you. And, and so every once in a while, though, every once in a while, not a lot, but every once in a while, these prophets would, wouldn't warn of a current day woe, but somehow they'd pick their heads up and they'd look forward to Israel's future redemption. That promise that Israel was going to be a blessing to the whole world. When God would do something through Israel to, do, to be just what they said he, he, they would be. Now, one of those prophets, you've heard of him, his name is Isaiah. Most of his writings have to do with current day problems in Israel. But there's this one point in the prophecy where Isaiah picks his head up and looks ahead. Now he's writing about 600 years before Jesus is born. This is so amazing, okay? 600 years before Jesus is born. Here's what he wrote to the nation that the kings were leading astray. He goes, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he, and of course at the time people are wondering, who's he? Who are you talking about, Isaiah? He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, peace, by the way, is that word shalom, the original state, and by his wounds, we're healed. We all like sheep have gone astray, and each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Again, the people have to be confused. See, like you hear that story and you go, oh, I know who he's talking about. They had no idea. Who's this he that's coming, that's going to have our sin put on him? 
Isaiah, what are you talking about? We got a whole system for dealing with sin. It's all in the Mosaic Covenant, right? If we do, he does. The priest, they, there's a role that we have. We have a priest. We need a priest. It's the priest that intercedes for us between God. And, and the priest, he, he on holy days, he takes our, our sacrifices into the temple. And once a year, we have a, a ceremonial scapegoat, and we send the scapegoat with all of our communal sins. We send him off into the wilderness to die. And we do this over and over and over and over, but we do it with animals. Who's he? Isaiah goes on. He says, for he was cut off from the land of the living, and for the transgression of my people he was punished. Cut off from the land of the living. That sounds like he, he's going to die. And he's dying for my transgressions. Who is the he that would die for me, right? Who is he? He goes on. He says, this he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his debt, after he suffered, he'll see the light of life and be satisfied. And my righteous servant will justify many. Sounds like almost the whole world. And he'll bear their iniquities, for he bore the sin of many. And he made intercession. He now is interceding, not a priest, for the transgressors. After he, he died, he was buried in a rich man's grave. Is that right, Isaiah? And it sounds like you're saying that he came back to life. He's going to see the light of life. I thought he was dead. Who is this guy? Well, for a long time, nobody knew who he was. I, I, I mean, it, it all made so little sense. Was it, maybe they, they began to think it was perhaps just the ramblings of like an overzealous prophet. But 700 years or so later, the, these new followers of Jesus who picked up the Jewish books of the law and the prophets, not looking to convert to Judaism, not looking to live under the Mosaic Covenant, they began to read these writings from the prophets about the laws, not looking to live under the laws, but because they began to see Jesus in all of them. Again, at the time, in the nation of Israel, it was very confusing. It, it seemed to make so little sense to a people with kings and temples and priests and prophets. Who's the he? And so this is the state of the story, the nation of Israel, that God started with Abraham and told him one day to this nation that he was going to give this land, that this nation would exist to be a blessing to the whole world, which 2,000 years ago, when Jesus came, had to seem like God had gone back on his word. Because here's why. Malachi was the last prophet, the last of the Jewish prophets. He prophesied to the nation and to the kings 400 years before Jesus was born. This is actually cool. Check this out. He, he has this little prophecy as, as he once again, most of the times he's addressing the nation and the king, but then he picks his head up and he looks forward again to it. He goes, this is the, he goes, I will send my messenger. God says this to Malachi. Tell them that I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Me. He sees a messenger that's going to come and prepare the way for the Lord. And then suddenly the Lord you're seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. The Lord, the Lord is coming to earth with a, with a message of a covenant? What covenant? The Mosaic covenant? A, a different covenant? But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For who he's going to be like a, refining, a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. The Lord is coming and he's going to be like something that purifies or, or something like a soap, something that cleanses. Again, 
I mean, who's the messenger that's preparing a way? Who, who is the Lord? Who's the he? And here's the thing. God just leaves it. He just leaves the story like that. Not for 10 years or 20 or 30 or 100, but for 400 years, not a peep. Not a word from God about this. And things aren't going well either. Rome under General Pompey, who had been given charge of expanding the empire, he rolls into the promised land of Israel, conquers Jerusalem, and 60 years before Jesus is born, 40 years before Jesus is born, the Roman Senate declares Herod the Great is now the king of the Jews. They don't even have their king anymore. It's now the Roman king. The nation wonders, after 400 years of silence, with Rome in charge of the streets, with Rome guarding the temple, what happened to God? I mean, what about the promises and the covenant? And who is the he? What happened to the he? Until one day, 400 years later, a very ordinary Jewish carpenter finds out that his fiance is pregnant. And suddenly the next part of the story, the one the prophets had looked ahead to, is about to begin. Here's with the Apostle Paul, whose story we, we'll get to in the coming weeks. But at this time, Paul's just a Pharisee. He's a religious leader working in the temple, doing his best to live all under those Mosaic laws, right? So that he can be blessed like his people. Paul explained it this way. But when the, time, the set time had fully come, God sent his son. I mean, you could just stop there, right? When the set time had come, God sent his son. Born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Luke, the Greek author, or historian doctor, who looked into all of this, right? I mean, if you don't think the Bible is true, listen to what Luke, listen to the detail, because he wants you to know this is true. Luke goes, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip was the tetrarch of Ituria, and Trachonitis and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness, and he went into the country around the Jordan. And you know what Luke says he was saying over and over and over? That there was a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. And three years later, I mean, it's like Luke is going, I would love for you to check this, check me out. Proof, proof me. Three years later, the he that Isaiah and Malachi wrote about stood up during his last meal with his friends, and he said something that changed history. He grabbed a ceremonial glass of wine during this Passover meal, this highly, highly regulated by the Jewish law meal. He picks up a cup that had ceremonial meaning under the law, and Luke writes, in the same way after supper, he took that cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. A new covenant, not the Abrahamic one, not the Mosaic one, a new one. The one, if you are a follower of Jesus, that is your covenant. That is your covenant. Most people don't tell you this. They keep pointing you back to an old covenant. You have a new covenant. Unless you're Jewish, those others are not yours. You don't live under the law. You live under a new arrangement with God. Did you know that? What is it? How is it different? Well, we're going to go through that in the coming weeks because I want you, you, you to know so you don't get fooled and duped. But I want to end where I started. Luke wrote that on that morning of his resurrection, Jesus 
did with his disciples what I hope I've done today with you. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all of Scripture concerning himself. And Jesus did that for a reason. Because resurrection's hard to believe. They doubted. I mean, let's just be honest, right? If the sum total of your understanding about your faith is that we have ten commandments, which, by the way, I don't want to blow your mind, is not part of the covenant that you're living under. Those aren't your commandments, right? I mean, if our faith is, well, I, I, there's ten commandments and there's Jesus and I can be forgiven because Jesus died for my sin. I mean, let's be honest, right? That's the kind of faith that's easy for your college kids to walk away from. It's easy for you to misunderstand. It's easy for others to take advantage of you. Your story is way bigger than that. In fact, I'm telling you, I'm here to tell you that story, our story, your story is not over. Jesus is still writing in your heart and in your lives. The church is still going. The story of Jesus doesn't end with him rising from the dead. That's just the beginning of the next chapter. And it's a story we're going to pick up next week. But I, I want to leave you with this. Lots of people walk away from faith for one of two reasons, usually. One is they conclude it's just not real, it's not true, it's not verifiable. And I guess if your version of faith is, well, there's Ten Commandments and Jesus rose from the dead, that's kind of what I know. I mean, that's easy to walk away from. My hope is over the last couple of talks I've helped you see that what we believe is not fanciful, it's factual, it's not just truth, it's verifiably true. But the other reason is this, that they feel like they've tried faith and it's not working for them or God's not coming through for them or, or God's not keeping his promises. I mean, if that's where you are this morning, and I get it. I mean, our shared long story is that God is often silent. Like, that's the truth. And I know oftentimes he seems far or distant or uninterested, but our story, knowing our story, it shows that it's not true. Friends, God is always, 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 always at work keeping his promise. He did to Abraham. He did to Moses. He did to Israel. And all of those things tell me and convince me that he will for you. God is not absent in your life. God is at work in your life. You might not see him sometimes. You might not feel him sometimes. His ways are often not our ways. His timing is not our timing. But heck, I mean, I, I promise you, and my promise is worthless. He promises you that in all things, in all things, your trials and losses, in your bad diagnoses, in the setbacks and letdowns, in all things, God right now is at work for you as believers. If you believe he is at work on your behalf, working for your good, for those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. He's shown it to be true over millennia for others and I promise you it's going to be true for you. And so for today, trust and believe. We're going to pick the story up next week. But for now, I hope you spend the week wondering. And then, what happened? Let's close with song.